Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Lewis and Cal Show. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with a repeat guest, Scott McEwen, for his second time on the podcast. For those who don't know, Scott is the co-founder of a company called Espresso Displays. They are the world's thinnest portable second monitors. You can fit it in your backpack and have the power of two screens everywhere that you go. For a long time, Espresso actually sponsored the podcast. And because I love the product so much and I use it so frequently, the Espresso displays have a really interesting backstory. The company was only created a couple of years ago. And I wanted Scott to come on the podcast to tell in more detail the founding story of how he, along with his co-founders, brought Espresso into existence. So in this conversation, we cover literally from the conception of the idea for a portable second monitor to taking a trip to China to find a manufacturer to build them, getting on Kickstarter, et cetera, et cetera, all the way to present day, where it is pretty well known. And Scott was actually in the United States, in Las Vegas, showing off the product at the Consumer Electronics Showcase, CES, which is why he was in the US, which is why he made the trip to Phoenix after CES to do this episode in person with us. So that was extremely fun. I'd highly recommend if you're not checking it out on YouTube so you can see it was actually in person in a studio, which made it extra fun. Other things we cover in this conversation. We cover the displays and the product decisions that went into making them. Scott's philosophy for managing a lot of the different decisions at the company. That's things like hiring. That's things like marketing. That's things like how he himself learns the skills necessary to solve the problem in front of him in the company. We discussed the future of remote work more generally. Obviously, there's a lot of tie-ins with a portable second monitor and remote work. And as always, if you've listened to the Lewis and Kyle show before, you'll know that we cover a whole lot more. I am pumped for you to listen to this conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to switch over to it now. Enjoy. Scott, I'm excited to be doing this in person today. In person, a couple years later. In person, a couple years later. Let's talk about how did we get here doing a podcast in person in Phoenix today? Well, I think I was in CES in Las Vegas for a week with the team. And then I think you must have seen online that I was there and yeah, and wanted to reach out and I didn't have many plans after. So I ended up working out, you know, you, you offered to let me stay at your place. So we ended up doing that. Exactly. I was like hoping at first I was like, you know, maybe just say hi to my dad. My dad lives in Vegas. He'll be on this trip that weekend. Just like, you know, run by where he works and say, Hey, and it, it didn't work out. And then you're like, what if I just came to Scottsdale instead? So. Yeah. Well, I was planning to go to a few places further north, but, you know, so say some friends in San Francisco, but the weather there is, you know, there's currently a flood and it's raining a lot and, and whatnot. So yeah, coming to visit you is very serendipitous and I booked the flight the next day and now I've been over at your place for the last few days. It's been a good time. Maybe at, towards the end, I'll ask you what you think of uh, Phoenix versus Sydney, but what were you doing at CES? Like what was the value in being there? So for our company, Espresso, we're based in Sydney, Australia, and we're a consumer electronics company. And CES is the largest trade show of the year where it has everyone announcing and releasing the latest, greatest tech. It has, um, you know, people, heads of IT departments who are looking for particular solutions within their organization. And of course, retail distributors, wholesalers from all over the world go here to discover and find new products that they can sell to their customers for the year. So it's one of the best places for us to go to, to exhibit and also network and meet with current vendors and suppliers and wholesalers and distributors, as well as form new relationships. That's awesome. Let's dive into kind of maybe you're making announcements there, maybe there. I want to start with not the kind of latest and greatest or latest and breaking news from, from Espresso, but let's start like towards the beginning and the origin story. Where were you in life? You're still obviously a young guy and this company's been around since a couple of years now. Where were you in life when you started this company? Yes, it was just towards the end of my degree. I studied uh, a bachelor's of civil engineering. So it was about a five-year degree in Sydney, Australia, because uh, you do about one year of practical experience. Uh, six months in your second year, six months in your fourth year. Adds an extra year, five years. And towards the end of that degree, I'd had you know about four years worth of industry experience. I had that job lined up and always itching to kind of do a bit more or whatever else was exciting. So worked on a nonprofit with some friends and that sent me over to Nepal a couple of times to be involved with that. And in addition, we did this entrepreneurial subject. And in that entrepreneurial subject, we're throwing around a bunch of different ideas and working on kind of group projects. And one of those was with my now co-founder, Will, where we were really frustrated from only working from one laptop screen when we were used to using two or more kind of large monitors to actually get work done. And it was that, I guess, initial pain point without having industry experience, never created a company before, never developed a product, but 
having that clear like understanding of the need of the product and the passion and the energy around it plus also the idea at that stage of creating our own product was just the coolest thing. Uh, it wasn't at that stage, it's not about like the, the business idea. It wasn't about the growth or anything else like that. It was purely, wouldn't it be cool if we created our own product, even if it was just a prototype that only we used. What's interesting about that, it, did you have multiple monitors set up at your engineering, like in-person experience? Yeah, absolutely. I had, I had two 32-inch monitors and I would stay after work, nights, you know, evenings and whatnot, and do most of my university work there because I had a full setup even printers and everything else. So that was my standard for when I wanted to like put on music, do a, a solid block of uni work. But then now when I was at the university campus, you only have like your small laptop screen. So it's not even nearly comparable. So I kind of understand like both worlds. I think at that stage, which was 2018, people kind of had two environments. Environment one was they had an office, a set office with multiple monitors. And that was pretty much the only place they did work. You know, working from home was kind of a, a fringe thing that, you know, not many people did. And if people did do it, they'd probably have the, a similar setup at home. It's effectively an office setup just in their house. An office setup in their house in 2018. The opposite was kind of university students, you know, for example, like would only work off a laptop screen and never use multiple monitors. So never identified the need. So myself, as well as my co-founder, both kind of had that comparison to understand that hey, wouldn't it be cool is, well, not even would it be cool with, it is annoying that I don't have two screens when we're here at university trying to, you know, do this assignment. Well, it comes back to what we were talking about on the way here when we were driving, right? We kind of very easily adapt to better circumstances and are very resistant when those better circumstances are pulled away from us. And I think that's what kind of positioned you as a unique founder in this circumstance is I never really cared about a second monitor at any point in my life until I had used it for the first time. And then kind of since that point, I've been completely unwilling to to work without a second monitor and you've enabled a lot of that as well just in terms of how old I am and how long espresso has been around in uh, my career arc but the fact that you are still in school when a lot of people still have that like ambition and like I can do something really big and like your creativity and you're a lot less kind of boxed in and what you consider possible because you're in that kind of academic and very nurturing environment having already known what it's like to have that screen and then being like, I'm just going to refuse to do like this difficult project without a good setup really positioned you well to, to do this. So were you, was the idea birthed in a side of like an entrepreneurship class or was it kind of like on the side that it came about? It was, it was on the side on campus, you know, one late evening when we're trying to just like do the assignment and, and get that done. But I think that the importance of that layer of the entrepreneurial subject that even in an engineering curriculum, it's kind of quite separated from entrepreneurship and brainstorming ideas. So it was, a, it was kind of a form of energy of us like riffing on ideas of what if this, what if that kind of created that environment for us to then have our own individual pain point and frustration, which then turned into a, oh, but what if, rather than this is annoying. Okay, let's just go home. You know, let's go home. End of the conversation. It was, you know, this is annoying. What is the solution? I think that's like part of the difference. And the difference as well is that you weren't two business students, you're two engineering students. Like, you know, how difficult can it be to achieve this idea? And it wasn't driven from, is this a good business idea? You know, it was driven initially from, wouldn't it be cool to create our own product? Was that a kind of long-standing ambition of yours? No, it definitely, definitely wasn't for me at that time. I think it definitely was for Will prior to that as well. But for me, it really came from solving that pain point which we had that night and then that energy around developing that and Will, like that night, created a 3D printed prototype that he connected to his laptop and put a tablet in it and sent me that photo. Which oh, I was like he, a case kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a frame that kind of extended out from your laptop and put a tablet in there like he did it like that night. So it, there was just an energy that was formed around like like momentum was created. Yeah, not waiting. We can create like we can create our own thing like this is really cool and and like that excitement as well as I wanted that problem solved <laughs> like for myself. You're like, like I have a lot more work to do before I am back in the office setting and I'd prefer to have a second screen when I do all of it. Well, it's always about like I guess freedom and choice and flexibility uh, of being able to have that kind of ideal setup but wherever you go, like whatever your reasons are, whether it's demanded from you by your workplace, say if you're on the road salesperson, maybe you're in, in a C-suite role where you have to travel a lot 
if you're out and on the road a lot, then you want to be able to like set up at any given desk and just be able to work without having frustrations of, oh, I wish I, wish I was back in the office. And that's what we're looking to solve. And I, I knew that really well, very personally. So presumably, right, you're in your early 20s, so is Will. I, I don't assume you had this huge bankroll to do all this R&D. How do you go from this kind of plastic iPad frame to actually a shippable product that, you know, we have one in the studio we can kind of put on camera later on, but what was the progression from we're still in school, somewhat broke, and we want to take this frame and actually have one and start using it? Yeah, so a few different things happened. It took about a year, year and a half from that initial moment to actually launching on Kickstarter, launching the prototype publicly. So a few things we moved in together. So that just mean that we could... 24-7 startup vibes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it meant that like that was that was the thing. We were moving that forward and, and yeah, that was, you know, really exciting, exciting time. Um, there were also really cheap flights to China where, you know, we didn't really have anything That's specific. That's such a good point. You're so much closer to China and Sydney. Same time zone, plus minus a couple of hours. Uh, it was, we got return flights extremely cheap. So we just went over there just to like suss it out and, and see what it was like. And that was really cool at that earlier stage to actually not make the whole manufacturing side of what we would eventually have to do, you know, very foreign and scary, but actually going there just for fun, just to check it out, you know, so that kind of made it a lot more approachable, less daunting and whatnot. And I think we'd never really had any like reservations about that in the first place. So, but it was a very exciting thing to do. All that happened in like the first couple of months. And then really it was around kind of getting each of like the components of the prototype, you know, as we wanted with something we wanted to take to the market and just created a couple of um, iterations of it and various prototypes. And then we got to one that like we were very happy with. We thought it was great. And people, you know, we had people asking us saying, hey, can I, can I pay you money right now for this prototype? Because I want that. And we're like, no, we've got to use that for our, for our launch. That, that was a very good indication that, hey, we've gotten to a stage now where we can launch a pre-sale campaign using Kickstarter and kind of switch from kind of the initial product development to marketing and full-scale product development yeah but it was, it was it was very lean operation back then it was um it was still definitely like expensive personally at that stage with the the money that we had so we both had other jobs at the time and uh so like that definitely cost a bit of money getting physical products not just a couple of um uh, software licenses that you might have just gotten for free or yeah, like it's a not startup just your canva account and your shopify account yeah yeah, yeah. Of, end of story yeah and like you know the equivalent like accelerator you know you know, discount or whatever you get initially. So yeah, a bit more expensive. And then uh, we also got a local government grant that's focused on developing an MVP. So that uh, really helped us kind of get at that final stage across the line. And yeah, and then Kickstarter was great for that because we were able to pretty much, you know, create all the marketing collateral and marketing assets, create a video um, and the Kickstarter landing page and take that to market and get that upfront money that we could put into production. Yeah, and like you're saying, that transition to marketing, the two of you hadn't really done marketing at all before that. No, uh, pretty much every step of the business along the way, uh, we've had to learn from scratch with what we need to kind of figure out. And as the business progressed, we were able to kind of find the people who had the skill set and experiences that um, could kind of take it to the next level. And that's kind of the same uh, position that we're in now. Um, you know, continually, that's the most fun part that, you know, you carry it through knowing what you want to try and get to. And you get to you know hire and bring people into the team that are incredible at what they do. They've been doing it for you know years or even decades, and bring that experience and that skill set into you know whatever the next chapter is of our company. Let's talk about now the the V two screen that you actually did show off at CES. Like, what is that? You know, dimensions is that this huge? I mean, I I have the V one right because when we we did our interview a couple year and a half ago, I got the V one because that's what it was. But now we have the V two. And what is let's let's talk about like the actual specifics of this product. So it's not just it's a not just an iPad in a frame anymore. Yeah. So the espresso display is an ultra thin USB C external monitor. Uh, it is the world's thinnest portable monitor, and what it does is it connects to your laptop as well as some tablets, desktop computers, even some phones, gaming consoles, anything that you traditionally connect a desktop monitor to, and enables you to have a second or even third screen that you can kind of set up and take with you anyway. Now, why do we want it to have it as the world's thinnest? Not necessarily the world's thinnest, but being light and thin is super important if you're going to take it around in your backpack with you when you're traveling. You know, I'm aware of pretty much every 
you know, gram or pound that's in my backpack when I'm carrying, carrying it and traveling around the world and, and walking. So making it really light and thin is what earns space into your bag, as well as the utility of, you know, needing to have two or three screens when traveling on the go. We have a range of stands and accessories because our goal isn't necessarily about creating a monitor, but it's creating a productive portable workspace. So what we've got here, this is the espresso stand. Uh, and we all have magnetic stands and accessories that all kind of fold around. And what we love about this, and this is our most loved accessory as well, is that it has a dual hinge that you can adjust the height and you can adjust the, the angle. So you can kind of create your perfect workspace whenever you are ready to get set up and plug it in. Yeah, so I almost always use mine in vertical mode. I write a lot of code and did a lot of long documents and writing. So the vertical rotated screen was also really clutch for me. Yeah, so one of the differences between V1 and V2 that a lot of our customers love is that we created an auto-rotate feature with the launch of our desktop app called Espresso Flow. This is because a lot of people like you like to use it into portrait mode and especially with the Espresso stand, you can easily rotate it into you know, a portrait orientation and kind of what you're used to with tablets or mobile phones is that you just rotate it and it just transitions to that layout. Now, in monitors, that's a lot more difficult and it's very uncommon. It's only really on like... Well, most monitors don't have like hardly any intelligence, right? It's literally just a display. That is like the word display is to be taken literally. Very much so, very much. And the Apple Pro Display XDR is one of the very few that does have that feature set, but that's obviously... Uh, so what's that screen, like $10,000 or something? It's very expensive. Yeah. It's, it's very, a very different kind of customer and different use case, but... Yeah, that one's uh, not ultra portable. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. And it's one of those things that the more that we can kind of create a great experience for people who you know don't really want to focus on the monitor itself or setting up your your desktop and setup but actually the work that you're doing like within your workspace environment laptop display any other devices that you're going to be using that's really where we want to drive the most value with um, our product suite and that's where the launch of espresso flow is one of the key differences from v1 to v2 and auto rotates one of a few of those features one of the other features that uh, are really loved and a, a core part of our kind of product strategy, pretty much based on all the user feedback that we had from version one was rather than using a third-party company that uh, helped us with doing touchscreen on Mac for our version one, uh, Espresso Flow, our own desktop app, is what now enables and drives that. That allows us to kind of have full control of that product experience and uh, we've now been able to deliver a much better kind of touch experience and introducing our own stylus um, so that can be using for that can be used for whiteboarding, drawing, marking up documents, even you know hobbyist visual illustration. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of steps between two engineering students and creating your own native touchscreen software and creating your own external device that connects to the software and putting that on the team. So what in terms of present day does the kind of size and scope of like the engineering resources look like? Are these like problems that you solved internally? Like you you and Will just like figured out how to make the right chip you have to install and how to make the monitor go on its own? Is that something you outsource to like a contract manufacturer? You have, you've at this point hired really intelligent engineers and I'm sure there's a different answer potentially for like each of those different technical challenges I've outlined, but yeah, each of those is a substantial technical challenge. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. It, you know, we, we have been in the game for a few years now and we have just done things one step at a time. Like say, for example, we, we solved a lot of the form factor and I guess basic supply chain challenges with the version one, getting that into the market and then utilizing, I guess, you know, say third-party software providers because we had to bring something to market pretty quickly. Those types of things are where you kind of start. Um, the engineering team is one of the biggest team teams in Espresso right now. We're very much like an engineering and product development company, but we also do our own marketing and sales primarily to also connect the insights, like sell directly to the customer with exactly what we create, and then also get the insights and feedback from them, which goes directly back into our engineering and product design pipeline. Now, a few parts of that. The first part is having your supply chain and contract manufacturing, you know, from, you know, the, the architecture and the chips that you kind of use. And then your engineering team kind of works with and helps guide the selection of that. Like I'm very, uh, very, very limited in, in my role that I play in that. That's a bit beyond, you know, my knowledge and skill sets. But selection of 
the components that you use is, is one of the very important things because that unlocks particular challenges. The supply chain over time with new technology also changes. So, you know, every so often you also have to kind of change what, what components that you use to cater towards, you know, um, as we know in the last couple of years, like various supply chain challenges, even pricing or new technologies that kind of come out. So that's one of the important first things that you have to do. The next part of your question really, I guess, you know, comes into say the software. The software for, has now solved a few things for us. The software for one actually is really important to the user interface for pretty much finding all your like monitor settings and layouts across both Windows and Mac. Yeah, user interface and user experience as well, kind of. User interface and user experience, very, you know, very useful. So say, for example, on, on Mac and Windows, a lot of people, like a very surprising number of people, really struggle with going into system preferences on Mac or settings on Windows and diving through that uh, kind of menu to find where their monitor and display settings are and, and, change, and, and change the thing that they want to do. So imagine you plug in the Espresso display and you press the Espresso app and the first thing that you see is the arrangement of your multi-monitor setting. That way you can then kind of click whatever display that you want and kind of change some of those settings, layouts, brightness, orientation, things like that, that just you know, reduce a lot of our customer support tickets because the users are able to find exactly what they want, you know, where it's intuitive. So that's one of the first things. Second thing is that it also enables new functionality as kind of being like a smart monitor that, like what you said, the basic display isn't able to do. So one of those is, as we spoke about, auto-rotate, and another one is the touch experience. And not just having a, you know, single pressure touch experience, but a, a pressure-sensitive touch experience so you can draw and illustrate with kind of high fidelity and make it a really high-quality drawing experience on, on Mac, but also a high-quality drawing experience on Windows too. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of people I interview on this podcast kind of has molded my philosophy towards like the just like the MVP type approach, right? Like the just minimum viable product, get what you need to have in there. Whereas you're kind of like from day one, no, it needs to like kind of have all of these to be competitive, right? It just has to have everything working right off the bat. It has to be portable. The power, for example, has to be convenient. So that's a huge thing for me that I always appreciated was that because it's USB-C, right? You don't need like an external power source and that's a huge pain in the butt for, for portability. It's like now I'm defined because when you're traveling and, and working anywhere but your house, it's like, you know, am I going to be limited by how much battery my laptop has and then how much battery the second screen has? And that's kind of like one problem that's solved. But even like caring to integrate touchscreen, it's, at least to me, seems like a very difficult thing to worry about and also making sure that's like, present in, in day one. Why specifically is like touchscreen so important in your opinion to like, that was important this early on in the company's journey to be part of like a non-negotiable? In our initial go to market, it wasn't internally, it wasn't as important as, as what we thought. It was, it was primarily the portability and being able to have a second screen as a core component and having touch was more around a um, supply chain opportunity that we had that, you know, if, if we could, if we're going to create a monitor, you know, could we also add it to be touch as well? Yes, we can. Okay, let's do it. But what happened in that first year in the market where, you know, a lot of people, you know, especially the touch for Mac with the third-party software, so many customers came to us both from Windows and Mac saying that the touch drawing experience was something that they really, really wanted. They used a lot and it was almost an essential part of their product experience of the Espresso display. And that was really exciting and it was really surprising. And in addition... We also had a lot of kind of um, tailwinds around being touched for Mac, which has never really been the case. It's never really been accessible and uh, an easy interface for people to use and utilize uh, for common usage. So whether it was, uh, you know, tech press and tech journalists, whether it was uh, YouTubers or whether it was just customers seeing that they could use touch for Mac, being able to utilize that was a big draw for them initially, which uh, was probably something that we didn't think about as much until those customers like mentioned that to us. And at the same time, this was now 2020, end of 2020, and everyone's now moved to you know, a work from home or work from home back in the office a couple of days a week, depending on where you were in the world. But primarily now this like fully remote, you know, working lifestyle that we've just shifted to then change kind of how we collaborated or how we visually communicated. There was no more kind of whiteboards and in, in meeting rooms where yeah. people would discuss different ideas or put different notes up. But now with our display and the fact that it was touch, 
you could now say share screen and virtually whiteboard. So kind of replaced what would traditionally in an office either be, you know, a whiteboard, for example, or some of those more really expensive interactive whiteboards that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So there was a number of things there in in that we heard from our from our customers and users that we thought, no, this is a very important thing for us to do. It'll it'll open up a very solid roadmap for us into the future. It's we're very early listening to our customers right as a lot of significant behavioral changes happened. And we did, you know, an engineering evaluation of like what can we do, what's possible, and saw that we could do it. So we moved forward with it. You know, there's this point you're talking about when you were a student with this theory. You're like, you didn't really care. Like your priority wasn't, is this a viable business? You're just like, I just want to get a product into the world. Where was the point in your story when that kind of shifted? Not like in terms of your priority, but in terms of realizing not just would a student care to have this, but like like what, what made it click that, okay, there's actually like tons and tons and tons of scenarios where people are going to want this specific type of thing? Yeah, so it, it particularly shifted for me once we launched the Kickstarter and once we once we that campaign was finished and we, we got about four hundred and thirty thousand dollars during that forty day campaign. Is that technically a pre order? They were all pre order, okay. like pre sale. It's a pre sale um, platform that pretty much says, Hey, we've got to put this product into mass production uh, and we've got to commit to a particular quantity, help us get to that quantity so we can deliver on that as well. And also the cash to to put that into production, not, you know, the having to kind of bankroll that yourself and then hope that you have a customer once you're ready to go to the market. So the platform's really good for taking a new product to market. But what we found, right, was great. Specifically a physical product, yeah. Yeah, specifically physical product, yep. Now, once we kind of had that campaign, we we already saw that, hey, we're going to deliver this product to the customers and, you know, we don't have much money to even buy more products. Yeah. What do we do next? And that's when the start of like the the kind of business thinking allowed us to kind of think, hey, how do we get more of these products into more people's hands? And at the same time, we know there's so many more things that we want to do. How do we, you know, the business is the system that helps us to create and do more of the things that we want to do, whether it is new products, whether it's new features, whether it's even new, you know, events and activations. Like that's essentially what, you know, you, you want to kind of do. And that's when we started to think beyond just how great is it to create a product? We've now done that. Now it's all these other ideas that have stemmed, just like, you know, the espresso display was you know, the first idea. Exactly. And how do we bring those into life? And that's pretty much the still where we are today. And we still have you know, probably years of things that we <laughs> want to do. And, you know, there's more more ideas that we have, more products that we want to create. And and that's that's kind of where the thinking's at. Yeah, so what would you define kind of the overall mission for the company as? Because I think, you know, there was a point in time where it's, okay, let's just, we've created this unique thing, the, the espresso display, let's get that in as many hands as possible. But now that there's all these different pieces of the puzzle, like how do you say like the kind of working towards one cohesive goal? Yeah, the, the cohesive goal is helping people to create their ideal portable productive workspace setup wherever they want, you know. So wherever you want to go based on whether it's personal choice or whether it's, you know, part of your you know, responsibility and role, you should be able to go anywhere and set up a productive workspace that helps get you into flow as quickly as possible. So our desktop app is called Espresso Flow because that's really at the core of the essence that we're trying to kind of, you know, create with this company. It's not necessarily about the tools that you use. It's not really even about the laptop or about the espresso display. It's about what you're able to do with it and getting into flow, removing distractions, removing frustrations that inhibit you from being your best is really what we aim to do as a company. That makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. You said you sold $400,000 worth in terms of Kickstarter or, you know, that ballpark. And I imagine that wasn't just like several hundreds of thousands of students or whatever that the math ends up being. What was that like composed of in terms of groups of people? Well, for Kickstarter, Kickstarter has a really strong community. So a lot of those people were really just people who back Kickstarters continuously. Okay. And yeah, it's very uh, densely focused towards the Kickstarter community. I think out of the 1,152 kind of Kickstarter backers that we had, more than a thousand had already backed a previous Kickstarter. So it was really, really surprising. So when, when people used to ask me, you know, who's your persona when we just did the Kickstarter, I was like, <laughs> people Kickstarter, use Kickstarter. People use Kickstarter, yeah. yeah. So um, just the early adopter type person. And this yeah. this this for us was quite a challenge. It's it's 
less of a challenge now, but initially because like, you know, what's the persona of a, a laptop user, you know? It's pretty much everyone. Or the you know? persona of an iPhone user, right? What's the persona of an iPhone user, right? A person, yeah. yeah. And as you're kind of going to market, uh, really what you're looking for is a hybrid between like, yes, definitely persona for like kind of generalization of characteristics, but almost that kind of jobs to be done for or who's the person in the environment where a second screen is most useful for them. Like game changing. Not yeah. just useful, but like game changing. Game changing, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you, every it's time useful for everyone. But... Every time you're working just from your laptop and not having that second screen and you're thinking about that and you're frustrated being like, why am I working just from this laptop? You're trying to, you know, you've got two screens that are, you know, you've got two applications on one laptop screen and you're dragging between them. You can't see the information you're trying to see or you're jumping between tabs, you're minimizing your, um, say on Mac, you're, you know, doing the four finger explode to see all the apps and switching between it. All of that is removed by being able to have a second screen. Now that problem solved for a fixed office with desktop monitors that have been around for decades. But in this portable environment, there's not that many solutions that effectively solve this. And there's definitely not many solutions, you know, us and maybe a couple of others that actually solve this in a really high fidelity way for people who like to be the most productive. They really like to, you know, work work quite hard, be quite focused and have products and tools that enable them to do that, say, with touch, with the ideal kind of workspace setup uh, and then even what we're starting to do now with um, in-screen productivity tools. So it's a bit of a different kind of space compared to what we've been used to. But what we're trying to find is like to so say traveling salespeople, you know, consultants are a big one as well because consultants often like uh, one also travel, but they also work from client offices and they're client facing and they want to present a kind of professional image and having kind of our display that you can kind of flip around mm-hmm. facing towards who you're presenting to and then even allowing them to... They're not to- even using it as a, as a second screen, as a mirrored screen, right? It's literally just like what you see that you're just showing what's on your screen and you just have it on the other side of showing them what's on your screen. And instead of you just kind of like crowding next to this person you don't know at all and like kind of standing shoulder to shoulder and staring at the kind of small space between you, you have... I've, I've used my espresso with like a six foot, six foot long Thunderbolt cable where I literally just had it like fully, like, yeah, it makes total sense. Literally just like having a desk on the same exact screen right behind, but being able to like not, I mean, do that in any setting. It's a little bit awkward to kind of crowd around a, like a laptop screen to try and go through a presentation and whatnot. So this kind of just removes that. So obviously just lit in a coffee shop, dude, it's like in a super informal setting. Exactly. So it's a, it's a still in an informal portable, you know, on the go anywhere setup, but now you're able to kind of set up, you know, your, your laptop and then the display facing the person sitting there and it's highly functional. It creates a very seamless experience as well. So it's very useful for that consultant, for example, also makes them look quite look, look quite good. And cutting um, edge. We, we have a customer who we were speaking to last month in December and they work with like GIS, like mapping software. Sure. And they work with like um, 3D data, large, or, large organizations, you know, governments, universities, thing, things, uh, organizations like that. And it's, yeah, visualization data and being able to plug in the espresso display and having, say, their potential clients or existing clients being able to zoom in and interact with those visual maps was something that was, you know, they really loved that they were able to do that. So there's all these kind of like, you know, specific examples where it's quite useful, as well as, say, for other people who, run a kind of hybrid workforce and they want to map out a particular idea or they want to say mark up a document and give that feedback and a lot of people don't have printers at home so if you can't print when you're working from home three days a week and you really need to you know what can you do well very easily you can draw and mark up using the espresso display and not only does it save you printer costs and printing and ink paper but it's also a lot faster because you're already kind of on the tool, there's a, there's a whole range of tools that enable like PDF markup online whilst drawing. We've we've partnered with another Australian company to help deliver that solution, and it's very seamless, very quick, highly functional, and our pro- product delivers one of the best experience for that. Yeah, I was in the studio a couple of weeks ago with a, uh, a notebook and a pen, and I've since upgraded to like a digital writing solution with a, a proper like Apple pen and whatever. And just the paradigm difference in terms of what you can do is like, and like the word paradigm, I don't think is an exaggeration. Literally, just like the st- st- erasing the entire stroke versus just having to like erase kind of based on like what you physically make content. It's difficult to explain to someone who like hasn't used it before, but it's literally like 
and one of those things like when I purchased this iPad, I was like, this whole iPad's like a thousand dollars. Like, why am I spending all this money? And then after like several weeks of using it, I'm like, this is a thousand times better than a notebook. How is this only a thousand dollars? Exactly. And that's like, there's, there's countless examples where people have those types of experiences with our products as well. Some that they know about. A lot of people initially um, want the product because of, uh, again, being able to have a second screen and that portability aspect. But then that the, the touch experience is something that they kind of discover because they've never really used it before. They use, you know, touch. Especially people who've been like lifelong Mac people, right? Yeah, yeah, or, or they or they have Windows devices that have never been touchscreen, yeah, or too. or even um, the one of the very interesting ones are people who have a touchscreen Windows device and they don't really use touchscreen on that interface, so they think, hey, I don't really need to use the touchscreen. But part of this is actually the form factor of having a touchscreen laptop screen is is uh, not that useful. You commonly see that for those devices, they actually fold it around. They kind of convert it into a tablet. Yeah. They use it as a tablet, then flip it around, use it as a laptop. So using a touchscreen with your laptop is actually not that functional as a use case. This is part of the whole thesis around why Steve Jobs and why the Apple team have never gone to a touch experience for Mac because of the ergonomics around it, that it's not highly functional. But you separate that with a external monitor that you can place right in front of you, you know, either flat on the table or at a slight angle if that's your preference. That kind of changes that dynamic about like both on the Windows experience as well as the kind of Mac experience as well. Let's talk about now kind of, you know, we're two guys in a room talking about how cool this is. How did you get more than two people in a room to appreciate that this is cool, right? How do you go, again, you said that the money you got from Kickstarter was not like 400,000 sounds like a lot of money, but it's very expensive to manufacture a product that's never been, been manufactured before. So I don't think like half of that was like, oh, now we have this great six-figure marketing budget. I imagine it was like a closer to zero marketing budget. So what was that stage of the of the puzzle? Getting this awareness, getting in front of the people who have these problems and convincing them that this is actually worth trying and buying? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that worked really effective for us right from the beginning was was PR and like tech influencers, like tech reviewers on YouTube. And that's still something that's a very important part for us and all of our product launches and being able to see, you know, what when you, when you, you haven't heard of this brand before and you, you see the product, you think it's kind of cool, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a premium product, so it's pretty expensive. You want to go and do your research. You want to see, is this, can this product do exactly what I want? Is it high quality? Is it worth the money? Right. So where do you go? You usually go to YouTube or you go to some of these kind of tech blogs and look at the reviews and what, you know, an experienced and professional tech reviewer has to say about this product and then compare it to what are the other options that you want to have. So very important thing, why we did that and had a big focus on that right at the beginning was kind of, as you said, we didn't have much of a marketing budget. So, and also when we had a marketing budget, we were engineering students. We didn't know how to use a marketing budget and we also didn't have the money to, you know, get a marketing agency on retainer to then also tell us how to spend money that we didn't have. <laughs> so it ended up being um, just uh, just us kind of emailing tech journalists, emailing YouTube influencers, and as soon as we you had... a budget to do that. Well, how expensive is sending an email? For now it's free. For now it's free. So that's what we were able, able to do. And sending out, I still remember our first article was written by uh, a tech journalist, uh, very experienced in in Australia, John Davidson from the Australian Financial Review. And one of our first production units, it didn't even have our logo onto the product. Uh, and he was one of the first to review it during 2020. And the article said, you know, the headline that he wrote was, you know, this portable screen could change your life. You know, talking particularly to, that was a time where Australia had just moved into a lockdown and that had just finished. So he was kind of talking about that transition point was really important. But you know, imagine you're a, a new brand, you know, you just launched. Uh, at that stage, we hadn't delivered yet to our Kickstarter customers because we only had pre-production units. So these are the units before you go into full swing production that you kind of prove that, okay, everything is designed as you want it to, right? And straight away, we wanted to get those out in the hands to get that additional reach and and help and then they'd always backlink towards, you know, at that stage it was now our Indiegogo, like our landing page where people could then pre-buy as part of that kind of pre-pert, like pre-sale period. So that was the initial part that then extended also to like YouTube tech reviewers um, where they could kind of give a bit more of a um, video um, editing experience. Like me personally, when I research, you know, whether it's headphones or other devices, like I always look at like YouTube as my primary kind of research tool because I want to see it. I want to feel it, feel it through the through the influencer, 
And um, so I knew that was like really important, you know, so did, so did Will. And so reaching out to kind of tech influencers who were happy to do it either in exchange for product or even better, like as a loan unit, because we didn't have that many to hand out, <laughs> yeah. um, were like that's generally what we're looking for because they were only really the, the levers that we had at the time. Yeah, so th- those were the key points now. But like even now that we're further down in the business, like those are still really important. And But now it's not us you know, scrappily sending, sending emails out. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's a part of the business that really focuses on that. Yeah. And it's not saying, Hey, you can borrow this for two weeks, but I need it back. Cause that's the only one I have. Yeah. It was also really good to actually have the support from a lot of these like tech reviewers and even like, like, yeah, tech YouTubers, you know, they're tech reviewers as well, because I guess they saw the story that a couple of your know, university students did take want to take a product to market and it isn't this typical kind of product launch story so for them actually giving us that real feedback uh as well was like very very valuable right there and and their relationships that we've just built and fostered over time uh, as well so in terms of the the software side of the company is your main kind of strategy and or advantage with that now that you do have like an existing user base to market to directly or are you trying to get people like is the espresso flow software useful to someone only if they have an espresso or is that like a separate way and it kind of creates like a flywheel effect so is it like purely just this is a way to add even more value to people who have espresso or is it like kind of like a two-pronged flywheel where now this is just a general utility that is useful for anyone to manage whatever's on their screen and then those people also might happen to find out down the road that you have a product so is it like is it like some is greater than the parts or is kind of two parts of the same strategy the core of it is delivering the best, you know, productive on-the-go workspace. So it's really core to enhancing the espresso display and the experience that you can have there. That's really the core of it and helping that person be more productive. But there's a number of features that 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 about that kind of core mission that independent of whether needing an espresso display itself. You know, for example, we've created two products that are in the Espresso Flow app. One of this is Snap, Windows Windows Snapping. You may be familiar with this. There's a number of other similar tools that allow for, you know, uh, hotkey shortcuts to yeah. arrange um, your monitors into, you know, your windows into a particular space, left, right, up, down, this monitor, that monitor. And so we bundled that into that app and make it very easy to access and uh, and use. And then another one is a one-click workspace launcher. And that is a completely new and unique product. And that allows that imagine you have, you know, a three-screen workspace and you know exactly what apps and windows that you want in that layout. And, and what spots on within Exactly screen. what yeah. spot that you want, exactly the layout that you want, exactly the app that you want or web page, or maybe like if it's a, a browser, you know, the exactly three tabs that you want. With this workspace launcher, you can save that configuration and with one click, open all of those up into exactly where you want it. So those features are a call. We, we think about our display user when we create those. But if some of them are independent of actually requiring to buy an espresso display, we still want to bring people in to our ecosystem and community. And also if they say, for example, new brand, they haven't heard of us before, you know, there, there's a, somewhat of a degree of, I guess, skepticism, which is, which is natural, then they can download our software, it's free, and it will have some of those features and functionality. And as they kind of learn more about us and what we do, and if we do more software updates that mm-hmm. allow for new features that they like, and if they find themselves in a position where they've needed a second screen when they're traveling on the go or whether they really need to improve their like kind of drawing workflow, then, you know, hopefully they'll think of us and say, look, I already know their products. I know it's, you know, the high quality. They're really going to help me make like be my most productive self. And if, if that works, that's also great. Yeah, you've already built some trust and affinity as well with these people. And yeah. And awareness. Well, yeah, of course. Like, and, and that's, you know, when you're a new, when you're a new brand, you're, going up against the brand recognition of all these companies that have been around like before the internet. Yes. You know, all these big companies. And in doing so, like they're, you know, building trust and credibility and 
and social proof is is really important. And you know, it's one way to have a lot of reviews that say they like the the product, whether it's from kind of professional reviewers or industry bodies bodies who have like design awards and product awards, or whether it's like from your customers saying this is what they like, whether it's in you know you know star review form or whether it's in like a video testimonial form. But there's no greater kind of way to develop trust by delivering value to that person. And if you can do so with software or content or anything else, then that's always like a good thing, a good thing to do. Let's do some, uh, some more kind of like rapid bonus question type questions, less kind of following like this, this story arc, you could say, if you were starting, not starting the company over again, necessarily, because we don't need to start like a day zero. But like you said, you didn't really have any formal training in marketing. And you didn't have any really like frame of reference for how you should do it besides just like, well, I'm a tech enthusiast and I learn about products from journalists and maybe I should just put my product in front of journalists. What would you do now in that first year of business from a marketing perspective to accelerate growth, get bigger, faster? I'd do all the things we're doing now, but I would have just done them a lot faster and a lot better. Okay. So really around clear positioning and use cases around like the times and circumstances where people need the product and are most frustrated by not having the espresso display. So like this has obviously been like a really exciting journey to be on the last couple of years in in two ways. One is my first time bringing a product into the market, you know, growing a team, doing subsequent product launches, growing a more kind of scaled kind of marketing function as well. And and you know, being a part of a business that's that's growing. So there's so many learnings that kind of come in that. And then you put the additional layer of the last couple of years as well, which is particularly, you know, doing all of that whilst also going through, you know, the pandemic in Australia where, you know, there was a couple of lockdowns and I guess the degree of uncertainty or limited travel around the world and, you know, the either the headwinds or the tailwinds around kind of accelerated forces around working from home and that brought a lot of opportunities as well where people were working from home but they didn't have a work from home office or desk setup so saying flexible like our product would be really useful and then the world kind of like opening up again and then kind of travel really rebounding quite quickly so a lot of people wanted a travel solution so it's been a real interesting time you know if if I knew what I knew now I guess back then you'd be better I guess you know navigating through that a lot better but when it comes down to a lot of it is really the common sense of, you know, make it very clear, you know, what your product is and who it's for and what problems it solves and what it can do for you that without having that product, you cannot do. And then I guess demonstrating what is the value of being able to do that. So say, for example, if I commonly mark up documents and edit documents and I currently kind of print everything, mark it up on pen and paper, and then I scan it and then I send that, you know, the cost of printing plus, you know, maybe a 20 to 30% kind of productivity improvement, what's that value? You know, if there's a clear way to communicate or to demonstrate that and then communicate it and know who, you know, really cares about that, maybe consultants, maybe, you know, lawyers, those types of people who kind of routinely do those types of workflows, then that makes it super clear and super obvious whether or not that person should do that. And then don't just make that, yeah, listen to me, this is what I say because, you know, you're, you're going to be buying our product. Let's get third parties who can verify that, yes, this solves that problem in that way for that person. So that's essentially kind of all it is from like a marketing function, function, but then also making sure that you're listening to your customers that goes into a place that you can all access and see it and like continually look to like improve the product based on problems that kind of customers have that you might, might not have known about as well as like new technologies constantly coming out and then how does that fit into kind of your solution? That makes a ton of sense. You're kind of just, I think like a theory and kind of brainstorming is that just people who are really good at something are just people who take like the fundamentals really, really seriously. You're saying like you really wouldn't do anything differently than the fundamentals that are obvious. You just like get testimonials, which is advice everyone hears all the time. You just like would not have procrastinated it. not saying you did procrastinate it, you would just make effort to get them early and often and powerfully and then have hyper-specific marketing materials. That's Again, that's not new or uncommon advice. You're just like, I would just take that more seriously, do it sooner, do it higher quality sooner, put more effort into it from day one, which is super it, interesting. It's like the, the rule is creating the unique and modern and contextual product 
that solves a problem that otherwise isn't solved. You know, that, that's, where, that's where the art of all this is, right, which we to some degree were lucky that we discovered that and were able to bring that through to the market and that's really the, the, the core and the essence of it, being able to show people what the product does and give them the confidence to, to buy it and even have, I guess, return policies where if it doesn't do what they uh, want it to do, then they can safely return it without that risk. Like all those things are really that a marketing function does and communicate that. But the engine of building a, you know, a scalable business uh, and particularly right now in this context where who knows what the next couple of years of work looks like, how will our behaviours change? One of the things that I'm super interested in is that there's been so many behavioural changes in the last couple of years around work, about how we do work and we hear all the stories around how offices are entirely being restructured and planned in different ways based on this new environment and a different role that the office plays and houses and house planning and the role of a study is in a household is really changing and stuff as well. But the devices that you use to work are still exactly the same as they were a few years ago. You know, so, and like, I guess besides us, we're a new product that's come into this suite for people to, to use to, that's relevant to what is happening now today. Now, that creates a really exciting kind of sandpit for us to explore and listen to customers and listen to um, other potential people who would love our products to say, hey, like, where are you working? What are you doing? And you know, now that we understand the, the hardware supply chain, now that we understand, I guess, I guess a couple of productivity tools with our software suite and even kind of new interfaces like having a touchscreen consistent across Windows and Mac, like that creates such a great environment for us to kind of solve a lot of these challenges. And then the marketing and sales is communicating these solutions for people. Yeah, and even getting specific with like a checkout page, you know, a developer's pain points where it's like, okay, tired of having Visual Studio and you literally say the names of the applications. Like tired of having Visual Studio open in one tab and then I guess we'll, we'll, we'll date ourselves here, chat GPT-3 in another tab where you're actually asking it to write the code for you and then the actual list of the customer requirements, then your Slack feed, then your general to-do list and then your iMessage. It's like, and, but then you have a separate one for the Photoshop person. You're like Photoshop, Illustrator, the... And you know, this is where this is me not in that person, so I can't like list the things that they'd have open. But when you can get hyper specific with your targeting, and literally, and that's what you also gain from the customer feedback is they tell you, This is how I used it with this setup. I you put this application here, this application here, this application here, and then in your marketing materials, you literally just replicate that. So it speaks directly to someone in that exact state of mind instead of saying, You know, how you like to have stuff on screens. Well, with us, you can have stuff on screens, but it's no, it's like this is the language that they're already using in their own mind. What, what you want people to do is you want them to see themselves achieving success with your product or solution. Now, if you provide that familiarity within whether it's, say, for example, social media ads or a YouTube video, if you enable them to see the familiarity of tools that they commonly use in comb- like combination setups that they know or even the common frustrations when they have to flick between different tabs and lose a spot of where they are on their page, like that familiarity will allow them to identify and say, hey, this is a solution that I really want. The frustration, say for us, a very common one is having to have, you know, split screening on one little laptop screen, you know, and that frustration of having to move that around and trying to navigate around that versus or, or even having multiple apps that you have to flick between and constantly getting lost, clicking the wrong tab, you know, even when I... You know, still use a laptop screen uh, and I find myself in a situation where I haven't got my espresso display, like like I still get really frustrated by that. And, you know, but rather than thinking, oh, this is annoying, I just have to deal with this. It's like, why did I forget my espresso display? You know, so like those common frustrations and then syncing that with the familiarity of giving, you know, different prof- customer profiles and personas and whatnot, the tools that they use is what really resonates with them. Like people want to understand that you understand them and you know that your solution can help and have a high degree of success for them. Like I did, probably didn't appreciate this as much and based on, I guess, our demographic of being, I guess, engineering alumni in our 20s, but like a lot of people are quite hesitant of adopting a new technology, like a new tech product. Because, That's a great point, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I really undervalued this because... 
really they, they think, will this work for me? Can I get it working? How do I get it set up? If I have an issue, do I want to deal with that? And, and, and all of those types of questions, which are pretty natural, but that has created a, a degree of substantial like kind of barrier for people to have this consideration. So we always try and really make the customer experience as, as, as easy and seamless as possible. That's like what we're saying before the Espresso Flow app has mm-hmm. your display arrangement settings like right there in the app. So you don't have to explore in other places that you may not be familiar with and adds to that friction. Yeah, a lot um, of Mac users, I forget that a lot of Mac users just don't know how to use system preferences. That's not even, that's just a fact. Yeah, yeah, and, um, and we, we, we get that from our customer support tickets. And, and these are the types of things when, when listening to our customers kind of saying, hey, how can we remove this? Like it would, how hard would it be to remove that friction from whatever percentage of users experience it? In addition, also I think having the one cable USB-C plug and play and showing how easy it is to just to set up, you can get going in about 10 to 15 seconds super easily and there's a very limited margin of error, like that gives a lot of people the confidence to, to try it. And I think that's super important always um, because people are calculating in their head, one, what is the value of this that like save, save this solution, like worked for me, what is the value of that? And that essentially justifies the price, you know. And then the other factor of it is what is the likelihood that I'm going to achieve that? You know, and that's pretty much the, if, if they think it's super high that they're going to calculate, um, the super high that they're going to get the end state that they want and it's a very high value, then they're, they're excited to be a customer. They're thinking, why didn't I get this earlier? If they're, you know, if the value is, I guess, moderate and the risk of it not working for them is moderate to high, then there's a lot of convincing that you've got to do. You've got to show them very contextual information. You've got to make sure the user experience is super clean, super easy, that they feel confident. They like they can see videos of the steps that you would give yes. your your customers after they purchase, and they can see, hey, I know how to do this, you know. And once, because now you've now that you've reduced that risk for them, and then now you've shown, you know, say for example, um, what's the value of me being able to use this as a second screen, and the productivity benefit is is value A. But now you go, well, with touch, you can now do B, C, and D. And yeah. the value's gone a lot higher. And they're like, wow, that's actually useful for me. And, and that's you know, how, how you do that. Now, that's a lot more easily said yes. than done, of course, because it's a lot of content. It's a lot of personas who care about a lot of different things uh, and a lot of different feature sets. So you know, definitely to loop back to your question about, I would be able to execute on all of that a lot quicker now with what I know because of, because of all of that. And that's a lot guided from pretty much just listening to customers and, and thinking about them as well. Like our origin story is that we are the customer. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we wanted. Like we built this initially for us and always thinking. But us meaning tech-friendly engineering students. Well, yes. And, and, that's, and, and you've got to you know, understand where, where your blind spots may be because of that. Say, for example, thinking about the ease of use mm-hmm. and, and onboarding setup. So in their 40s or 50s. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. So you, you've always got to be thinking beyond that. And, you know, you have, everyone has like friends and family in their, in their day-to-day life that you can ask these types of questions and, and kind of, you know, do that research to figure out where those gaps are. But I always like the, the easiest way that's kind of this like guiding principle is thinking back to like if, if this wasn't me, if this was like another company, what would I expect? Where would I go to do research? What would I want to see? What would I want to hear? What would give me the confidence to understand how much I should pay for something? Such a good question. So like, and, and that's because that like your own experience, like people, I know maybe discount their own experience and their own consumer behaviors, but you've been a consumer like your whole adult life and making considerations. And I have a bunch of tech products that I research and I look at. and I Many you chose to purchase, many you chose not to purchase. Exactly, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm probably in a couple of funnels and customer journeys of other products as well. So utilizing that is, is really useful. And that's a very good guiding principle as well about how you have your own kind of consumer behaviors, consumer patterns. Are you someone who waits for sale periods versus are you someone who is really about convincing that you know, you're going to deliver the value yeah, the from the product yeah. and therefore there's the opportunity cost of delaying it? You know, they're, they're two very different, um, I guess, psychographics of, 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 of you know, purchasing behavior. So, and how you choose to kind of communicate and synthesize that and, you know, then build a team that can do that whilst also introducing new products and new features and, and whatnot, you know, is, is, it's, 
you know, that that's a fun now. It's like the fun is the machine rather than the idea. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's do two really off-topic quick bonus questions and then wrap this up. What was the coolest thing you saw this year at CES besides outside of your specific domain of productivity tools and monitors and computer screens? Yeah, it's it's a little bit out of it, but not so far out of it. It was more of a multiplayer AR like TV screen that you could interact with and see, you know, obviously uh, an AR interface, but like the both of us could look at it and see two different things oh, at once. Cool. It's like multiplayer. And what I was surprised about was actually there's a, a, there was a real prominence of AR, VR, metaverse, product services, you know, concepts all the way from, you know, the, the Eureka Park, which is like the startup zone, all the way through to some of the biggest exhibits on, on display there. So that was really interesting about what our, how our digital life will continue to emerge and progress. That's how I think of it, of not necessarily like, will it be a thing? Will it not be a thing? Does it matter? Does it not? What I want it to look like, what doesn't it? It's more around, say for us, if, you know, particularly with laptop Mm -hmm. and monitor based work and particularly in in our position with espresso, like with espresso is to think about like, what is our, you know, digital life look like in both personal and professional settings and what are the tools, what are the ways we interact, how will that change, how will that mature? Like I remember earlier days of, of Facebook, before the days of Instagram, Facebook was a very different place and how people interacted there was yeah, very definitely. different. And all these kind of channels and platforms kind of emerge and change, the social norms emerge and change and mature and this is no different. So, yeah, that was a yeah very super exciting time to be in CS but I was there not as much to like look at what else was yeah, new. I was very, very was, there. You're there on business. Very there to reach as many people as you can to new audiences. And final question. This is your first time visiting the great state of Arizona, I believe. I'm not certain if that's the case because I know you lived in San Diego in the past. But what is the, the overall impression of, of the Phoenix metro area? You a fan, not a fan, enjoying yourself? For winter, the, the weather is absolutely incredible. Like having, we've been having blue sky days and, you know, going for nice walks. We've got a nice fun run on tomorrow as well. So... Yeah, definitely. I haven't visited Arizona. I think I've I've, I've driven through it to mm. go to the Grand Canyon, and other than that, like I haven't really kind of stayed here like I have on this trip. But you know, I really really do like the area. I'm, you know, it's a, you've chosen a good place to to live in. Thank you, man. Where can people who want to watch videos potentially see themselves in their shoes, research the espresso, watch tutorials, etc.? Where should they go? How do they spell it? domains, all that good stuff. Yeah, so our, our website is espresso, E-S-P-R-E-S dot S-O. We haven't been yet able to acquire espresso.com. So that's just E-S-P-R-E-S dot S-O. That's our website, has all the information there. We have a lot of tech reviews, like say on our homepage that you can access it there, like all the research that you want to do about finding out about our products, like we put onto the website, like obviously go off, do your own independent research, but all the things that we know people like to look at and re- like research and review, like we put it right in front of you. So it's just quicker and easier from there. And then also I guess our social channels also have various videos, ones that we've pre- produced ourselves and others that may come from like customers or testimonials and other people who kind of want to talk about our products. Awesome. Well, this has been a blast. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks, Lewis. Good to do it in person. Absolutely. That wraps up this episode with Scott McEwen from Espresso Displays and also co-author of the book 18 and Lost, So Were We. Three takeaways from me. First of all, Scott, I had the pleasure spending two weeks with him. He came to visit for two weeks in Arizona, and he did not run out of enthusiasm or energy or stamina the entire time. It was incredible. That's so evident that, one, he has an incredible amount of passion for the company, for the product, and for getting it in as many people's hands as possible, but also just such a vigor for life that makes him such a pleasant person to spend time with. So second take, well, I guess the takeaway is just really inspired by hanging out with Scott and really glad to be able to call him a friend and benefit from wanting to emulate his energy and his attitudes towards the world. Learned so much from hanging out with him. Second takeaway is the mission of Espresso. It's very cohesive, right? The second monitor, it's not just about having people have second monitors. Now it's the second monitors and it's software and it's this cohesive vision of making people have their perfect setup and be maximally productive no matter where they are in the world. So maximum portable productivity, the best possible setup to get the job done no matter where you are. 
And I think that helps them expand the mission and go from a big company to a really big company. And that's, I think, kind of one of those things that a lot of early companies kind of try to create a mission and it's kind of early and doesn't add anything to the bigger picture. But Espresso is at the point now where that big picture vision of like, we are enabling people to be as productive as possible, no matter where they go, and tying that into the macro trends of the future of work, travel and digital nomads and work from anywhere in hybrid work environments really creates a cohesive picture that I think will help them grow and communicate who they are to more people and grow more effectively. Third and final takeaway is the importance of learning by doing and just figuring it out as you go. Scott has that attitude of just bulldozing through whatever needs to be done. Asked him a number of times in this episode, like, how did you learn how to do this? And did you have any experience doing that? And the answer is always, I didn't have experience. I just, just went for it. He just figured it out, learned by doing it, figured it out along the way. And I think for Scott, it's worked out quite well. So many people take way too long trying to collect all the information that's possible, but you can only see so many steps in front of you before you get started. So it's very essential to just get started and solve the problem in front of you. And that's the only way to really consistently make progress. Otherwise, you're just someone with a big bookshelf behind you and not much to say for it. That is all I have to say about this conversation with Scott. Thank you so much for listening. Definitely check out Espresso Displays if you are curious to learn more about the product. Check out Scott's Twitter uh, it'll be linked in the show notes, Scott McEwen. It's also spelled out wherever you're listening to that. He's very easy to find on the internet. And yeah, subscribe to the Lewis and Kyle show so you do not miss another episode like this. And if, if you can't wait another week for another episode, then check out the backlog. There's almost 150 other episodes just like this one that I know you will enjoy. That's all for me. I will see you in a week with a new episode. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.